As John wrote in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Thank you, Danelle. Well, you made it. We made it. The last, the last verses of Revelation. Uh, since I've uh, been senior pastor here, I've, um, I was trying to count all of the books of the Bible that we've preached, that I've preached all the way through. and Started with 1 Peter, preached all the way through that. We went through all of uh, Acts together, we've been through Hebrews, we've been through James, um, been through a good chunk of uh, Genesis, not all of it, uh, several of the Psalms. Anytime I come to the end of a, a sermon series, there's always a little bit of a, um, uh, a breath of relief, I suppose. It's like, all right, we made it through that. That's done. Check. Um, I'm a little more relieved at the end of Revelation than uh, at the end of most. Uh, not because it's been bad, it's been very, very good, but it's also been very, very hard. And so uh, many of you are probably breathing a sigh of relief this morning that we are uh, at the end of Revelation. And hopefully not because it's been bad, but because it's been so good and yet also um, uh, challenging uh, to us. When we started Revelation, we took pains, made efforts to focus on five principles, five things to keep in mind as we work through uh, this very uh, uh, difficult and, and heavily symbolic book of the Bible. The most important thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Revelation is primarily a book written, a letter of prophecy written to the church to encourage Christians to endure with faithfulness until Christ comes again. Keep the main thing the main thing. Then we also wanted to uh, remember the original audience, that Revelation is for the church in every age, but it was first written to the church in the first century. Those seven churches uh, throughout Asia Minor that we, um, that, that we saw in Revelation 2 and 3, uh, John or Jesus through John first addressed these words to those churches, but we know also it's for the church in every age. So we remember that this book has meaning. It had significance. It, it was understandable uh, by Christians 2,000 years ago, and it's meant to be understood by Christians every year since then. So we remember the main thing, keep the main thing the main thing. Remember the original audience. We want to pay attention to uh, repetition. There are a lot of things in Revelation that uh, repeat themselves, appear over and over again. We'll even see in the final verses of Revelation 22 some repetition of prior blessings that were spoken over, given to the church, and even images, symbols, pictures that will recur again. We want to mind the repetition. Fourth, we want to mind the symbols. We know that Revelation is a heavily symbolic book and that not every symbol lends itself, lends itself to an, uh, a literal interpretation. Uh, there are locusts with the faces like of, of men and hair like women and tails like scorpions that you try to put that into an actual picture of something and it's a, you come up with a strange thing. So we have to remember this is a heavily symbolic book and John is pulling from symbols that have been used by other Christian authors or uh, by other biblical authors throughout Scripture and speaking about the things that will take place, what God will be doing in the world before the end comes, which leads us to the fifth and final principle for interpretation. Remember that Revelation is Christian Scripture. This is a part of God's Word to the church. This is part of how God reveals Himself to those who, would like, who, who want to know Him. He's revealing His character. He's revealing His plan of redemption, of rescue from sin for those who trust in Christ in it. He is revealing what is our blessed hope, which is not just resurrection from the dead, but also eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth, this world, this universe, made new with Him forever. One of the important things to remember about Revelation uh, next to all of and in light of all of these five 
principles is that Revelation is also a letter, a letter of prophecy, but a letter addressed to churches. As we get to the end of Revelation chapter 2, we have the closing of the letter, John and Jesus's final salutation to those who would read. And this letter doesn't end quite like other letters that we have in the New Testament, except for maybe verse 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. That's a a pretty common uh, sort of uh, salutation uh, or blessing at the end of uh, Christian Scripture or letters of Christian Scripture. We see John using similar phrases, uh, Peter uh, likewise. But the rest of this closing to this letter is, is a repetition of a number of different blessings and promises to the church. What we find through these final verses of this wonderful book of Revelation is that there is manifold blessing for the one who hears and keeps the message of Revelation by pursuing holiness in Christ until he comes again. John started with that blessing in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this, uh, of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep it, who listen to it and do what it says. Why? Because the time is coming uh, near. The time is near. That same blessing is to us and more at the end of Revelation. Here's the main idea of these final verses as we close with this book, that Jesus will return to bring everlasting blessing to his people. If you need to come away from Revelation with anything at the end of it, come away with this, this certainty, that Jesus will return physically, bodily, in glory to bring everlasting blessing to his people. We learn from Revelation 22 that the return of Jesus will be a blessed event for everyone who trusts in Christ and for everyone whom he returns for. We saw a glimpse of that in the picture of the new heavens and new earth last week. And we who know Jesus in this day today need to prepare our hearts and to prepare our minds to live with hopeful expectation of his return while also pursuing faithfulness to Christ in all that we do until he returns. The promise that Jesus is returning is not an invitation for Christians to sit on their hands and just wait idly by. It's an invitation to persevere in fulfilling the Great Commission, in representing Christ well in the world, to persevere in faithfulness by not compromising with idols and worship to false gods. The certainty of Christ's return is an invitation to everyone who loves Jesus to press on, to overcome, to conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the Word of his testimony. So let's look at the four blessings that are to us, that are to the church in every age in Revelation 22. First of all, in verses 6 and 7, we see that Jesus blesses those who obey God's word. Jesus blesses those who obey God's word. As our final passage in Revelation opens, the angel that has been chaperoning John through these uh, visionary cycles reminds John again that the words of God are true and trustworthy. The the vision, this revelation that came to John and is for the church has come from a trustworthy source, not from an angel, but from God himself. Revelation, this book, this letter, this uh, prophetic uh, uh, apocalypse is God's word through John to the churches first in Asia Minor, those seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3, but then also to the church in every age thereafter. Remember, the final principle to interpreting Revelation is to read it as Christian scripture. Revelation is God's word for the church. It's God's word the same as any other book of the Bible. Revelation is God's word the same as Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. 
It's God's word, the same as Job or the Psalms or Proverbs or Leviticus. I know that's everybody's favorite book of the Old Testament. Revelation holds the same authority, the same divine authority over the life of the believer that every other of the 65 books of Christian Scripture do. Revelation, just like 2 Timothy, is profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, and training in righteousness. Revelation demands our obedience as well. Blessed is the one who hears and who keeps what is written. Revelation is not just a word to be heard, it's a word to be obeyed. It's a word from God that calls us to active obedience. Jesus, in verse 7, reminds the church that he is coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. A uh, promise that is repeated three times in our passage today. This is not the first time that we've read this promise of Christ's return, though. We saw it in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. I've already said it twice this morning. Third time ought to help. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear, and, bless, and blessed are those who keep what is written in it. Why? Because the time is near. What time? The time of Christ's return, the time of His coming. Behold, I am coming soon, Jesus says. So in light of Christ's imminent, meaning His soon, His near return could happen any moment, how do we obey Revelation? How do we keep the message of this book so that we might receive blessing from Jesus? Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. How do we keep the words and so receive blessing from Christ? Well, first of all, we hear its message. We tune our ears to listen to what God is saying to the church. We don't tune our ears to Revelation to listen to elaborate timelines and plans to know uh, how everything's going to unfold in the chronology of, of, of what will take place before Christ returns. We don't tune our ears to try to figure out uh, what, what the mark of the beast is going to, to be specifically. Do we have our, our mark of the beast evaluation matrices? It's like, well, it's, it's definitely not computer chips, and it might be this or that. I don't know. But rather, we tune our ears to Revelation, taking its main encouragement to heart. What is the main thing? What is the main point of Revelation? Church, persevere, endure with faithfulness till Christ comes again. We tune our ears to that message. That's how we begin to obey Revelation. We listen to what it's actually saying, to its primary message to endure, to overcome, to conquer in this age by holding fast to Jesus, by holding on to the object and the author of our salvation, the one who purchased it for us by his blood. We hold on to the lamb who stands as though slain, the lion of Judah, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. First of all, the, the first step to, to obeying the message of Revelation is to listen to it, to tune our ears to hear its call, to hear its command. And then we actually do it. Then we actually obey that message. We don't just hear the command, but then we put it into action. We actually hold fast to Jesus. We actually make Jesus the center of our worldview. We actually deny ourselves in order to follow Him. We work hard to crucify the flesh so that we can worship Him and not idols. We regularly repent of love lost for evangelism. We keep our teaching faithful and true. We warn one another when we see other people flirting with sin. We proclaim hope to everyone who will repent of sin and trust in Christ. That's how we obey the message to endure with faithfulness. We make Jesus the center of it all, and we follow hard after Him until we die or He returns, whichever comes first. The call to endurance and faith in Jesus through whatever may come from sinful worldly systems and sinful people is meant to bring us closer. 
It's meant to bring us closer, heart, mind, and soul, closer to Christ himself. That's what Revelation wants to do. That's what Jesus is calling the church to throughout this whole wonderful book. Come to me. Hold on to me. Don't compromise on faithfulness to me, Jesus says. So because there is blessing for those who obey God's word, Christian, I invite you, keep the words of this prophecy. Obey them. Endure hardship. Endure whatever this world may give to you. Endure it with faith to get more of Christ day by day. That's a reward for obedience. The reward to obe- for obedience to God's word is Jesus, is fellowship with God. It's a strange thing, but the, the truth is that the blesser is the blessing. You catch that? The one who blesses is himself the blessing. The blessing for obeying Christ's word, Christian, is Christ. It's not riches. It's not wealth. It's not popularity. It's not good looks. It's not a nice car and a reserved parking spot. The blessing for obeying Christ's word is Christ, God himself incarnate. What do you get for loving the lamb? You get the lamb. And not as your possession, right? But as your, as your brother and as your God and as your savior. It's relationship with him. It's life in his name. It's the knowledge of his love and the security of his salvation. It is in becoming like him in his death so we can share in his resurrection, like Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Christian, there is blessing for the one who obeys God's word. So endure hardship. Persevere with faithfulness to Christ in this age, in this day, until he comes again so that you can have more of Christ today and all of him forever. Jesus blesses those who obey God's word. Then verses 8 through 13 show us that Jesus blesses those who worship God in purity. He blesses those who obey God's word, and he blesses those who worship God in purity. In verse 8, John does what he was rebuked for doing back in chapter 19, verse 10. He he says, when I heard and I saw these things, I fell down down, uh, to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. And the angel said, chucklehead, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. John did the same thing in chapter 19, verse 10. He fell down at the feet of the angel who was delivering this message, and the angel had to correct him again for the second time in three chapters. John has been tempted to do what he's been, uh, what he's been telling the church not to do all through Revelation. He's been tempted to give worship to someone who doesn't deserve it. Praise God, the angel does not receive that worship, but he corrects John. Don't do that, brother. Worship God. Worship him. Worship the one who is bringing this message. Worship the one who is king over all of it, which we know is the constant call of revelation to worship God, to worship him in purity. From the vision of Jesus to the letters to the churches to the throne room of heaven through the hardship of tribulation and on the day of Christ's return, the proper response to God and all that he has been doing since the beginning of time to redeem a people for himself, the proper response to all of this is worship to him. And the response to God from the saints all throughout Revelation, as John sees them and hears them, their constant refrain is praise and worship to God. We don't have time to go back through all of the calls to worship, all of the songs of worship that are sung to God throughout Revelation, but they're all over the place. Read Revelation again this week or listen to it uh, uh, on an audio Bible and, and listen for, look for all the times you see people who belong to the Lamb worshiping, 
My friends, you won't be able to count them on all your fingers or your toes. This is the the constant refrain, the constant uh, reply of those people who know God when they see him working and, and, and when you see him exhibiting his power. It's to worship him. It's to praise him because of who he is. John is told to keep the words of this revelation, which show all of these attributes of God and, and all of his people's response to him. He's told to keep these words open. Don't seal them up, he's told. And that's because these words are for the world in every era, in every age, until Christ comes back. These words are for the church all the time, endure with faithfulness all the time. Why? Because it's always going to be hard living in a world where, where sin and darkness continue to manifest themselves. It's always going to be hard in a world where people uh, and, and spiritual forces oppose Christianity and the movement of the gospel. It's always going to be difficult to be a Christian. Christians are always going to be weird. And so we always need a reminder to persevere with endurance, following Jesus, worshiping God in purity. Revelation is a message for every Christian and every church as we as a call to awe-inspired worship of the only glorious God until Christ's return. It's meant to stand open as an encouragement to those who have been made righteous in Christ to keep doing what is right. And to those who have been made holy by Jesus to keep doing what is holy. And it is to remain open as a warning to those who are hard-hearted and continue in evil to turn and repent. We read in verse 11, let the evildoer still do evil, let the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do his right, and the holy still be holy. This is kind of a, 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 a strange sentence, strange phrases. I get the last two, let the righteous still do his right, let the holy still be holy. But what in the world is meant by let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy? I think it's something along the lines of let those who have rejected God continue to reject God. He will prove his judgment on the last day. Let those who love their sin more than they love Jesus, let them continue to love their sin and so incur all the righteous wrath of God that is due them at the end of time. Choose this day whom you will serve in some sense. Will you serve yourself and your appetites and the gods of this world, or will you serve the risen and living Lamb who died to save you from your sin? If you've been made righteous by Christ, if you've been made holy by Christ, then keep pursuing Him. And if you've continued rejecting Him, by no means stop rejecting Him and receive Him. Repent of your sin so long as as it's called today. Turn to the Lord. Why do we have this, this call to uh, continue in faithfulness or, or to, to carry on in hard-heartedness? Because Jesus says he's coming soon. And when he does, he comes as the God without beginning or end. He is, as he says in verse 12, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is the only righteous judge who sees through all of our pretense and who sees through every fruitless facade right down to the truth of our hearts, and he gives to each one what they deserve. Jesus blesses those who worship God, not with a mixed heart, not double-mindedly, not those who worship God and other things, but who worship God in purity. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, first and last, Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. He's the one who comes to judge in truth and righteousness. So worship God in purity. Worship God in purity so that you can stand before him with confidence. 
Jesus, the just judge, is calling his church, his people, those that belong to him, to worship God alone so that they can stand confidently before him on the last day. I would contend that everyone's life tells the true story of their worship. Worship is is simply the matter of giving worth to something or someone, saying that this person, this event, this object, this sports team, this pursuit in life is worthy of my time and energy, and most importantly, it's worthy of my praise. That's what worship is. What echoes out of our lives is what our hearts worship. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Revelation all along is calling us to worship God in purity of heart with a heart that is, and you know, not your physical organ, but your soul, with a soul that is, that is totally focused only on giving worship to God alone. So that every other, even worthwhile pursuit in this world, not that we'd throw it aside, but would pale in comparison in the terms of worth and praise and, 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 uh, and, and accolades that we give to it in comparison to God. Revelation all along is calling us to worship God in purity of heart, repenting of known sin, depending on Jesus, not compromising with idols. These are all aspects. These are all characteristics of pure worship because Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, friends. He sees all things. And you know what? He already knows your heart. He already knows mine. He already knows every one of our intentions right now. Whether, whether they're honest and pure and we are here in this place to meet with God and be transformed by His Word, or whether we're here because we're trying to show off to the person next to us, or try to I don't, get a good word in with the big man upstairs because I showed up to church one time. Whatever your motive is for being here this morning, I'm not casting aspersions or pointing fingers. It doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what God already knows. Christ already knows the intention of your heart. And He desires for you to stand with confidence before Him. He desires for you to stand with your, uh, with your head held high, not in pride, but with all the freedom that forgiveness of sin brings. And so the just judge of the universe who said in his earthly ministry, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God, here now says in the closing book, in the closing book of the Bible reminds us of the utmost importance of pure worship. Jesus blesses those who worship God in purity because he's the just judge who sees right to the heart of every individual and he alone is able to give to each person what they deserve. Friend, know that God knows your heart this morning. If your heart is not right with him, that doesn't mean it doesn't have to be uh, anymore. You can make a change to that right now and simply by whether you're a Christian or, or, or whether you're not yet a follower of Jesus, your orientation in heart to God can change immediately right now this morning. And it's as simple as looking on yourself with humility, seeing yourself rightly, that you are a person who has sinned and, and in your sinning you deserve death. You deserve forever, eternal separation from God. And turning to God who has demonstrated His love to us in Christ, who even while we were sinners died to make us clean and turned to Jesus in faith. Say, God, I'm sorry for the sin that clouds my judgment, that, 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 that crowds you out of my heart. I'm sorry for the pursuits of my own life, my own flesh, my own desires that have, that have pushed you out of the rightful place of the throne of my, my heart. And so, God, I'm giving that back to you, and I'm leaning on your son, Jesus, who's the only one that could bring me to you, that could fix, that could mend the breach in the relationship that I made with you. God, thank you for loving me in Christ. Change my heart today. 
Whether you're a Christian and you need a heart adjustment, or whether you're not yet a Christian, you're not yet one who follows Jesus, your orientation and heart to God can change today simply by doing that, by humbling yourself and clinging to Jesus. Jesus blesses those who obey God's word. He he blesses those who worship God in purity, a constant call we've seen all throughout Revelation. Third, we see in verses 14 and 16 of this last chapter that Jesus blesses those who come to him for cleansing. We read these words, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat of the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside of the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus blesses those who come to him for cleansing. Verse 14 is a little bit tricky in, uh, to place in terms of who is speaking. Blessed are those who wash their robes. The question is, who's saying this? Is John saying this? Is the angel saying this? Is Jesus saying this? In fact, if uh, you are reading from the New International Version or the Christian Standard Bible, uh, and you have a Bible that has the letters of Christ in red, verse 14 will be in red ink. It, it will appear as the words of Jesus. And this is hard because uh, when you're translating from the Greek in which John first wrote these words into English, uh, it gets hard because when John wrote down the Revelation the first time, he didn't use punctuation or paragraph breaks. Neither did anybody else who was writing in Greek. So he doesn't use periods or quotation marks, and he doesn't even give us nice little indents or subheadings or any of those things. So when we're translating it, it's kind of difficult to know, as all these blessings are sort of running together in Revelation, who's saying this, Jesus or John? But you know what, friends, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter all that much. Because all Scripture is God's Word. All Scripture is breathed out by God, Paul reminds Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 not just the parts in red letters. So even these words, whether they're Jesus' words or they're John's words to the church, they're all God's words. So the blessing in verse 14, the blessing to everyone who washes their robes to have the right to enter, the, to, to enter into the tree of life and into the city, this is a blessing from Christ, from Jesus, the risen Son of Man, to everyone who will, clean, who will, who will be cleansed, who comes to Him for cleansing. This blessing of having clean robes ties back to the identity of the great multi-ethnic multitude of Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. You remember that group? John says, Then I saw a great multitude which no one could number from every tribe and nation and tongue and people group. And, there, and, he, pres- and he shows us in, later in Revelation 14 that these are those who have had their robes, their garments washed in the blood of the Lamb. Those who belong to the Lamb, those who belong to Jesus, are those who have washed their robes, not in works of their own righteousness, but who have washed their clothes in the blood of the Lamb. To these, the angel says to John in Revelation 7, will be given the Lamb himself as their shepherd. And he will guide them to streams of living water, and he will wipe away every tear from their eye. Certainly, this confirms the blessing of heaven to everyone who has found their forgiveness of sin, who's found their sanctification in the substitutionary death and the resurrection for sinners, and who have pursued holiness through the help of the Spirit, looking to Christ, the Lamb who was slain. Here in Revelation 22, those who find cleansing from Jesus, uh, from sin in Jesus, the Lamb, are promised life eternal in the new garden. We saw that picture 
of, uh, of heaven, of the new heavens, the new earth, as a, as a garden with the tree of life there and uh, a river of life flowing through that place. To everyone who has had their garments washed by Christ, made clean by Christ, to everyone who has had their sin forgiven by Jesus will have the right to enter that garden and eat from that tree. Notice why this is a blessing. Why is it a blessing to go to heaven? To, to enter into the new heavens, the new earth, to have a resurrection body, to eat from the tree of life, to, to drink from living water. Why is it a blessing to have that? Why? Well, because see what's outside that place. Outside the eternal city, outside the new garden are all of those who would not find cleansing in Jesus. The new city, the new garden, the new cosmos is a place for sinners, friends, but only a certain kind, repenting ones. It's only for those sinners who saw the deadly nature of their sin in this life, who turned from it and who held to Christ, their crucified and risen Savior. Heaven is a place for sinners, but only those who have found repentance of sin and, and salvation from it in Jesus. Those who come to Jesus for cleansing will be made clean indeed. It's a promise. Friend, if you come in genuine faith to Jesus for forgiveness of sin, you will not be disappointed. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a promise of Scripture. Jesus will never get tired halfway through the job and say, never mind, that's too much work. There's not a thing you could have done. There's not a sin you could have committed in your past that Christ, in dying on the cross for those sins, is not able to cleanse from you entirely and to forgive you, from, uh, forgive you of completely. So, friend, come to Jesus for cleansing. Come to Him for forgiveness. And there's a warning, though, that all who are content in this life, in the muck, in the mire of their sin, all who love their sin today more than Jesus, will have all of eternity to continue wallowing in its consequences. There's a blessing for those who've been cleansed by Jesus, and there's a warning to those who refuse to be. Jesus adds his voice in verse 16 to verify this blessing. I, Jesus... And the one who sent my angel to testify. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus verifies this promise of blessing to those who will come to him for cleansing by reminding the church who reads this that he himself is the Messiah. He's God's anointed and ordained deliverer. And he reminds us of that in two different ways. He says, first of all, I'm the root and descendant of David. Uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 5 first pictured Jesus as the root of David. He's the lion of Judah, the root and descendant of David, the lamb who was slain. Picturing him there as the fulfillment to the prophecy of a son of David, that king of Israel, who would rule in justice, a promise from Isaiah chapter 11. And now here in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, 16, that reality that Jesus is, that promised son of David, rightful king, that promise is confirmed and it's restated by Jesus himself to affirm, to put his stamp of approval, to make it absolutely certain of his right to bless the faithful and to punish the wicked. Jesus holds that authority because he's the root and descendant of David. But he's also, he tells us, the morning star. This is an image that was first given to us in Revelation 2, verse 28. It's a picture that's dependent upon Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, and an oracle, a prophecy from a pagan prophet, interestingly enough, who was so overwhelmed by the Spirit of God that he could not prophesy what he wanted to, but had to prophesy what God made him. 
Balaam, this pagan prophet, prophesied about seeing a star rise from Jacob out of Israel that would crush the enemies of God. Like the root of David image, the morning star identity sets Jesus as the royal Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords who sits on David's throne to rule over true Israel in justice and in righteousness. And because he is that king who judges justly, he has all authority to bless those who come to him for cleansing. So this morning, I invite you, I call you to find forgiveness from the only God who can give it. There is blessing to those who come to Jesus for cleansing, who come to Jesus to be forgiven. So come to Jesus for the forgiveness you need because he's the only one that can give it. This is the, the, the constant truth of Scripture that is just laid before us all the time, that our sin, our disobedience, uh, the, the, the immoral things that we do are not most of all uh, uh, an offense to the people we sin against, but they are most of all an offense to God who is perfectly righteous and holy. There's nothing wicked or evil in Him. He made us in His image to reflect His glory and His character in all the known world. And all of us have said, no, thank you, God. I think I can do better on my own. Our sin, whether it's a, a lie on your tax return or you murdered someone in broad daylight in the middle of the street, your sin is ultimately and mostly an offense against God. Because you've said to him, we've all said to him, what you want, what you design for my life is not better than I can do for myself. What we need is not just forgiveness from people in terms of receiving salvation from our sin. What we need is forgiveness from the only God who can really give it. Because our sin is an affront to God, it's only God who can overlook it, who can pay for it, who can make us clean again. Forgiveness is a is a powerful thing. And it's a thing that, that I think we don't often understand we need as much until we've really come face to face with the effects of our sin. Uh, in 2018, uh, the movie A Star is Born with uh, Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. I don't know her real name, but her film credits are Lady Gaga acting together in that. Uh, Bradley Cooper plays a character Jack. Lady Gaga plays a character Allie. Uh, he's an aging sort of country rock star, and she's a kind of a, um, he discovered her and kind of put her on the map as a, uh, as a rising pop star, and the two fall in love, and Jack has problems with drugs and alcohol, really bad problems. He's kind of recovered from them once, but in the course of the movie, he falls into those addictions again, and, uh, and very publicly embarrasses his wife, Allie, on the stage at the, uh, at the Grammys, uh, a music awards show, embarrasses her, embarrasses her, her father, embarrasses himself and goes to rehab. And while he's there at rehab, he meets with a counselor and they talk about what he's done. This is not a Christian movie, but there's an important principle here. He meets with a counselor who helps him to see all that he's done in, in, in all the ways that his addictions has, have affected people around him. And so his wife, Allie, comes to visit him one day in the rehab facility. And Jack and Allie are sitting across the table from each other. And Jack, aware of all of the sin that he has built up in his life, all the ways that he has offended her and embarrassed her and embarrassed her family, with tears in his eyes, breaking down sobbing, says to her, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And all Allie can muster to say to him is, it's okay. It's okay. I'm going to spoil the movie for you. Over the, Jack gets out of rehab. 
Um, but not very long after, he falls back into a spiral of depression and despair and back into his addiction and ends up ending his own life. It's a terrible, tragic film. And I wonder, though, if Jack's life might have been different if that scene at that table had gone a little bit differently. If instead of when Jack is broken over his sin saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, if Allie would have said to him, not, it's okay, but if Allie would have said, you know what, it's not okay what you did. You hurt me a lot. You hurt others a lot. But I'm not going to hold that against you. I forgive you. We can move forward. We can move past it. Like, to just say, to look at sin, somebody who's broken over sin and say, it's okay, is a lie. Sin is not okay. And I think in this scene, it's just so powerful for me, at least as a Christian watching it, to see a man broken by his sin and to hear somebody just say, don't worry about it. Don't think about it. Because the reality is, all of his sin is still there. When Jack is saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, what he's, what he's pleading for is forgiveness. I'm wrong, and I know that I'm wrong, and I know that all the wrong things I've done have destroyed so many things. Can you please forgive me? Not just make it all okay, but can you take all of the offense that I've given, that, that I've poured out on you, and can you not hold it against me anymore? And all Allie can say is, it's okay. Friends, understand this. When you come to God with all of your sin, with all of your brokenness, and you say, God, I'm broken. I've offended you. I've perverted and destroyed and twisted your design for my life. I've tried to do things my way for so long that I've destroyed my own life and the lives of other people around me. I am a mess. Know that God does not look at you and say, it's okay. It's okay. And God looks at you and he says, son, daughter, it's not okay. But know this, the price has been paid. My son has died in your place. The penalty is taken for, taken care of. In fact, I've raised him from the dead to prove that I'm victorious over life and death and even sin because he died for you. There's no more of my anger toward you anymore. It's not okay what you've done, but I'm not going to hold it against you any longer. Christ has died. Come into my house of blessing. Amen. Understand, friends, God does not wink at our sin when we bring it to him. He's much better than that. He calls it out for what it is, and he provides the payment for our forgiveness. Friends, find forgiveness from the only God who can give it. Yeah. Find forgiveness from the only God who can give it, knowing that he'll do far better than just say, it's okay. He'll say, I've taken care of it. I've paid the penalty. I'll no longer hold this against you. Come into my house of blessing. Jesus blesses those who obey God's word. Jesus blesses those who worship God in purity. Jesus blesses with forgiveness. And sanctification, those who come to him for cleansing. And finally, Jesus blesses those who come to him for life. The closing verses of Revelation 22 are uh, just great. I, don't, I can't read them without a smile on my face. So I'm just going to read them again because I like smiling and reading God's word. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires the water of life without uh, desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if you add to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things, Jesus, says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. After all that's been said in the closing verses of Revelation so far, 
we find, inspires those who know Jesus personally and intimately to call out to him, come. Come on, Jesus. Come soon. Come now. We're ready. The Spirit of God in concert with the bride of Christ, the people who belong to the Lamb, corporately say to Jesus, come quickly. Those individually who have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, a constant refrain from Revelation 2 and 3, they say, come, Lord Jesus. We've heard the message. We know you're on your way. We're enduring with perseverance. Come. And then John adds another invitation, not to Jesus, but to whoever does not have life in Christ yet. This is an evangelistic call, maybe the clearest evangelistic call in all of Revelation to the one who has not obeyed God's word, to the one who is worshiping things and people other than God, to the one who's still wearing the filthy rags of their sin. John says, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for real life? Is your parched and weary soul crying out for a drink? Are you on the brink of destruction with only death before you? And are you desperate, are you desperate to really live? Then you come. You come to Jesus. You come to the Lamb. You wash your filthy sin away in the blood of Christ's righteousness given for you. You worship the God who made you with confidence that you have been made holy by Him. You who need saving, walk in obedience to, to Jesus for the love of getting Him in return. Are you thirsty? Come drink. Come drink from the water of life. It's free for the asking. But you have to empty your hands of the stuff of this world so that you can fill them with this water and drink. If you're thirsty, it's all yours. You just got to let go of everything that keeps you from being able to take it. Every Christian who has let go of their sin to drink the water of life that Jesus offers, that he offers freely to everyone, every Christian who has done this knows the blessing of being filled with forgiveness, knows the blessing of being filled with the Spirit of God and being made clean, being made holy from the inside out. Everybody who is let go of the world to drink the water of life, knows the blessing of being dressed in his righteousness and of being able to stand with confidence before God without shame or guilt, but only with the joy of knowing and being known by God. And these are all meant to live. Everyone who comes to Christ to drink living water is meant to live with hope-filled anticipation of Christ's return. He has testified that he is surely coming soon. And that doesn't necessarily mean tomorrow or within the next, next hour. It could be. Peter reminds us in 2 Peter to, to not uh, count the days the way that a man does, but to know that, that, uh, that for God, a thousand years is as a day. And so he is working out his things and his timing, and soon for God can be a long time for Christians. But those who are enduring with faith until Christ returns all cry out. All of those who have drunk from the living water that Christ himself supplies all cry out in worship and with gladness. Amen. Let it be so. Come, Lord Jesus. We can hardly wait. Jesus blesses those who come to him for life with glad and joyful anticipation of his certain return. I invite you this morning, be able to say with all conviction, dear Christian, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Be able to say that with conviction, like you really, really mean it. And you really, really want it. Even as Christians, we who, who, who know the salvation that Christ brings and we know about his certain return, we who know Jesus, we know that this is supposed to be our prayer, right? We know that we're supposed to, to, to anticipate with gladness Christ's imminent return. 
We just sometimes wish that Jesus would take his time a little longer. If Jesus returns today to bring a new creation for his people to enjoy, a good many of us would be found with our hand embarrassingly full of old creation pleasures and old world habits that have no place with him. The truth is many of us who are trying to follow Christ say, Amen, come Lord Jesus, just not too quickly. I want us to hear this clearly. We cannot be citizens of heaven while we hold on to our political and business kingdoms that we've built for ourselves. We can't say, Amen, come Lord Jesus, and hold tightly to the things of this world that we've built. We cannot be clothed in the righteousness of Christ while we chase down our porn addictions. We cannot image the bride of Christ while we go on sleeping with our boyfriends or girlfriends. We cannot inherit that city with streets of gold while we greedily amass riches for ourselves on earth. We cannot have life when we hold on to the death that our sin brings. We cannot have Jesus so long as we follow the passions of our sinful hearts. We should be able to say with conviction, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Not because this world means nothing to me, but because you mean so much and infinitely more. The call of revelation to everyone who loves Jesus is to conquer, to overcome, to persevere with faithful endurance, to overcome sin by living in daily repentance, to endure persecution by not giving in to false worship. The call of revelation is hard. To endure with faithfulness is a hard call. It sounds like the call that Jesus gave to those who wanted to follow him when he was traveling around Galilee and Judea, teaching and preaching before he was crucified. In Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 36, we read this. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? What will we have today, friends? Will we have the blessing of Christ when he comes again? Or will we have armfuls of the worthless rot of this age? Those who turn loose of this world's definition of life, this world's um, measurables in terms of what makes you good or bad or worthy, those of us who turn loose of, of what this world promises to give us as we follow sin, those of us who repent of those things will have arms free to grasp Jesus and true life, hands that are empty before the Lord are free to receive blessing upon blessing forever and ever from Him who is surely coming soon. Jesus blesses those who obey God's Word. Jesus brings infinite and everlasting blessing to those who worship God in purity. Jesus will bless those who come to Him for cleansing, and He blesses forever those who come to Him for life but we can't do it with arms full of sin and stuff and compromise. So what will you have? Will you have your stuff or will you have a Savior? I pray that the call throughout Revelation and the promise of blessing to the one who hears its message and who keeps it will be that all of us in this room would know the blessing of having Christ by letting go of the things of this world to have hands free, to receive water that gives life and a Savior that raises us from the dead. What will you have? What will you have? The choice is for all of us today. Let me pray. I want to ask that God 
enables us to choose Jesus, to choose repentance, to choose life, to choose cleansing, that we might hear the message of revelation and obey it. Let's pray together.